Aaliyah, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super fun. Let's do a let's do a normal pod thing where you tell everybody listening about you, and then I'll do a little intro just on how this podcast kind of came about. But you kick things off for us. Okay, so my name is Aaliyah. I am a pelvic floor physiotherapist. In the states, you guys call us physical therapists. It's the same thing. I'm from Canada. I live in Toronto with my husband and my eight-year-old, and I have a clinical practice here in Toronto where I see predominantly women dealing with all different kinds of pelvic floor dysfunction throughout their entire lifespan. Um, And I also have a bunch of online education and online programs and courses that I love to kind of offer to people who may not live in Toronto where I live. So really, honestly, my mission in life is to teach people about their bodies, about their pelvic floors and help them navigate these things that honestly as women, we just, we go through them and no one talks about them and we all feel alone. And I hate that. So that's, that's me. Cool. Um, I took your, you mentioned online resources. I took your before birth class. Um, I'll, I'll plug all this stuff. And I thought it was wonderful. It was awesome. And, um, I took it for a couple of reasons. We, we We are pregnant. I don't know if people get bothered when people say we are pregnant. I know I'm not pregnant. I know that my wife, Jenna, is doing the the, the, the this process of, you know, growing our child. Uh, but I, it still feels like a. I try and l- at least to make it a we experience. Part of that was taking your course so that she didn't. Ha- not, not that I don't think there's, you know, we, she watched a couple of the modules together, but we had a lot of talks about it. And we're going to talk off air about like working together with you specifically. But there was, you know, there's so much stuff out there. And so. Mm-hmm. Not only that she is pregnant, I'd like to learn more, but also I work exclusively with women and I, I'm never mm-hmm. going to take, you know, I'm never going to overstep my bounds and all that. But I think having something to say or places to to send people or having some understanding is is super duper important. Um, I loved your course. It was great. Um, it really Thank was you. exactly what I wanted it to be. And I'm going to lead with something that I'm I've, I've I've been figuring out how to say this. And I'm just I don't I don't have any other way other than just saying it is that I I think your course was amazing. So we'll do a little compliment sandwich. I think your course was fantastic. Thank you, Jordan. Uh, but <laughs> I think that the pelvic floor content experts, content creation, uh, this stuff that's out there for the either the lay person or just the, a, a woman going through like uh, this period, it doesn't, it didn't feel like, uh, it didn't feel like it did a good, when I say it, I just mean like the average information out there. It didn't feel like even I was like, all right, I'm going to go on this pelvic floor journey and I'm going to follow a million like of these, of these professionals, yourself included. Um, and there was good content out there. Totally. I was like, oh, this is like, I'm getting some experience, but I just felt like I, even after like looking and, and, and reading and I didn't have a really good handle on why it's important to, to, to take part in pelvic floor health or pelvic floor therapy. I didn't I didn't feel like it did a good job explaining what problems we're trying to solve, what risks are involved in not doing this, what are the things to look out for. It felt a little vague. And then I thought to myself, okay, so let me let me instead of like getting the surface level, just fucking following people on social media and pretending like you're gonna become an expert on it, I was like, let me take somebody's course who's like, hey, this is you know an investment in time and money, and let's go a little bit deeper. And your course answered all those questions for me. And I feel it did exactly what I was hoping it would do. But I do. I'm wondering if you feel that way too. Do you ever feel like, man, I'm having trouble? You know, no, I don't know. Having trouble is is not the right way of saying it. But like, I, I just feel like the average person, like on our podcast today, I was like, oh, what do we want to talk about? I was like, 
What is the pelvic floor? Why is it important that we work it? What does that look like? I just feel like it should be, I don't know. I thought I was going to have more of an understanding on it at a surface level, but I didn't. So can you speak to any of that and be like, yeah, that's something that I feel too, that people come to us with really no idea what this is. And I don't know, did any of that ring true at all? Yeah, no, I appreciate that feedback. I have to admit, I was like scared as you were talking. You were like, I liked it, but and I was like, oh, oh he's going to roast me. Is, no, your course is fantastic. And then that's what I was like, I kind of was like, damn, like where is, and I know that, I know social media, it's a small rant. I just know social media is not the place to like have really super in-depth conversations. That's why you have a course. That's why I have coaching. That's why we yeah. all do things that are more in-depth. But I was like, I was like still yearning for it. I don't know, whatever. I, know. I, I appreciate you know. the, I did everything I wanted to do. Yeah. No, no. Um. I appreciate and I can relate to the sentiment in the sense that I know that me on my own, you know, Instagram content, I don't do, I can't speak for everybody, but for myself, I definitely don't use the approach of like fear-based marketing tactics or even education tactics um, and kind of using fear or shame as a motivation for behavior change. It's not an effective strategy and it doesn't feel, it makes me feel icky inside. And I think that there are many people like yourself, but also like many women who go through these various phases, they don't know any of the things that you said. They don't know what the pelvic floor is. They don't know what the risks and benefits are of doing something or doing nothing with your pelvic floor. Where does one start? Is consuming Instagram information enough? Um, should we work with someone one-on-one? -on -one? Should we take a course? I think every person is different, but I do agree. I would agree that there may not be, uh, Instagram may not be the best place to get all of the information because there's a nuance that is lost and every person is different as, as you know. Um, and I think the thing is, I'm going to say this, I don't know. Some people need a lot of one-on-one -on -one help. Some people need one-on-one -on -one regular check-ins. They might need hands-on work. They might need personalized education in order for them to have a comfortable, successful, empowered pregnancy experience. Other people may do just fine with a group setting or a self-paced on-demand course that they do on their own time with their partner, on their own, whatever, and that is enough for them. Some people will browse social media and learn there and feel fine, and other people will go through their entire blasted pregnancy and not know what a pelvic floor is and come out the other side being just fine. I think that there's all these different camps of people and you just simply can't help them all <laughs> on Instagram, but there's too much nuance to be able to, I think, adequately um, and ethically share all the information, which is why I have like these different kind of tiers and types of content that I'm trying to have out there so people can take what they need and leave what they don't. Does that help answer your question? Absolutely. And, I, and I'm going to semi backtrack on like just like my expectation was not to follow a bunch of people and have a good handle on it. I just felt like um, uh, there are even people out there who are not not professionals, more like your clients and or patients, however you guys refer to them that are like, oh, I did a bunch of pelvic floor therapy. And I'm like, oh, well, well what did it help with? Like, what was the point of doing it? What were you like trying to do? And they're like, oh, I, I don't know. Like, I just heard it was good. And I just like, yeah. I really, I bet there are a lot of people out there who are, and I'll st we'll stop waffling about this and we'll move on in a second. But <laughs> I bet you there's a lot of people, mostly women listen to this podcast, but men as well. Um, you either are a woman or you have women in your life that you care about. So you need to hear this. Yeah. Um, is mm -hmm. that I want to be, I, I think there are a lot of people like, oh, I heard about pelvic floor. I heard the term pelvic floor and that, I, you know, my, my knee jerk is that it's important, but they have no clue why there's no specifics. It's this nebulous thing. It's a little vague. And I just want to 
undo that and, and put some detail and have people have some tangible takeaways around what it is and what, you know, what's the point of doing it? What does that even look like? So let's yeah. jump in basic overview. I know it's nice to have images. It's nice to have some, if you have like favorite images and stuff, I can link it after. <gasps> Talk me through. Okay, after I didn't prepare. Yeah. That's okay. No worries. I mean, we're not going to, this does go on YouTube, but like I get like 50 views. It's not like there's like a lot of people watching them. So primarily audio only. So let's assume it's audio only. Um, talk me through what is the pelvic floor and I'll shut up your turn. <laughs> okay. So it's a good place to start, right? What is a pelvic floor? Maybe we've never even heard of it and maybe we've heard of it, but we don't know more than that. Um, or maybe some people listening, um, or in your community, they are experts themselves, but let's just make sure that we're, you know, we're all speaking the same language here. So the pelvic floor, if we think about it, it is the bottom or the floor of your pelvis, right? It's the bottom of your bony pelvis. It's made up of layers of soft tissue, connective tissue, fascia, muscles, things like blood vessels and nerves. There's a lot of soft tissue and other important structures that make up the bottom of the pelvic floor. It's a flexible structure and its job in your body is to mainly help to support the organs that are in your pelvis. So if you're female anatomy, that would be your bladder, uterus, and rectum. And if you have a baby or more than one baby in your uterus, then that you know includes the pelvic floor would have to support that as well. Um, the pelvic floor muscles and the structures down there also help to kind of keep the holes closed and let things out at the right time, right? So um, female anatomy, we'll just talk all females, yeah? So um, three holes, one for the pee, the urethra, one for the baby to come out or the period blood to come out or a penis or other things to go in. That would be the vaginal opening. And then we have the anus for the poop and the farts. So part of the job of the pelvic floor structures is to make sure that those holes are closed until it's the right time to open them and let the things out. Um, they also play a role in kind of stabilizing and supporting the body, right? They form up, they form part of this deep core system that really helps to provide stability to your body. Your pelvis really helps to kind of, you know, it connects your bottom of your body to the top of your body. So it's a big uh, powerhouse stability area and pelvic floor muscles are part of our core. Sometimes we don't think about that or we don't even know that, but it's part of our core. And then kind of boring, the pelvic floor, boring, but important. Um, the pelvic floor muscles, they act like a pump. Um, they help to circulate like lymph and fluid and blood around our body. That's a very strong pump. Um, so, so those are kind of the main roles of the pelvic floor and where the pelvic floor is in our body. Like I said, it's the bottom of our pelvis. But if we want to be able to kind of really visualize and kind of maybe feel it on our own, we can find our pubic bone at the front. So our pubic bone is really quite low down. It is usually where pubic hair will start to grow. So even if you don't have pubic hair, you know where your pubic hair started. It's around there. Um, that's the front attachment of the pelvic floor structures. And then the tailbone at the back, that would be the back attachment. So if you find those two bony points in your body, then you know that between those underneath, that's where the pelvic floor sort of runs from front to back. And if you find your ischial tuberosities or your sit bones, so if anyone's ever been to like a yoga or Pilates class or exercise class and the instructor says, find your sit bones, sit up on your sit bones, those sit bones are these bony prominences. It doesn't matter how big your glutes are or small your glutes are, you can find them if you sit on your flat hand and kind of rock your body side to side. So side to side sit bones, that's the sort of right to left connection. So if you find those and you visualize the kind of area in between, that's where your pelvic floor is. Awesome. Amazing. And in there was some of the things that are connected to what the point of, you know, training the pelvic floor is. Um, I want to break it down into, so Jenna and I, we were having a chat. She was like asking me about the course after the first module. And I was like, I have a, like the way that my brain thinks about it is that there's whatever. I, listen, my brain thinks about it. I'm sure that you have better terminology for this, but there's three phases here. We have 
um, discomfort during pregnancy before the baby. We have discomfort during pregnancy. And then we have recovery after pregnancy. And I was like, hmm, I'm not actually sure what this is important for. Is this just important? Some people are like, oh, you should do pelvic floor therapy. It makes the birthing process easier. I'm like, okay, but they didn't mention all of the discomfort that I that I have during pregnancy and whether or not it can help with that. They didn't talk about a lot of women are, you know, what's going to happen to my body during pregnancy? How am I going to recover? You know, diastasis questions, you know, how am I just going to go back to my normal body or my pre-baby body? Or and, and in those three phases, could we maybe walk through them chronologically and say, hey, you know, working the pelvic floor, which I promise we'll get to specifically what that, you know, for the listener that we'll get to what that looks like. But in those three phases, are we, would you say it's helpful during all of them? And, you know, if so, how in each one? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think actually that's a really good way to organize thinking about it because there are kind of, yeah, these like maybe four main phases, let's say you said three, but let's say four, four is like pre-pregnancy. And then there's pregnancy and potential ways that we might fail during pregnancy and then the birthing process and then postpartum. So I love this. And I think that it is important to consider the, I mean, I'm so biased, right? This is my life's work. Um, but I think it's really important to address your pelvic floor in some capacity through all of those phases. Okay. Um, it doesn't have to look like doing hundreds of Kegels that I don't, I've, that's never something I've ever prescribed to anyone or recommended. And I'm sure we'll get into what it, like you said, what it can look like or what the, exercise might be for our pelvic floor. But I think it's important to kind of split it up into those three phases because what one might need would be different. We're almost like training for three different goals. So you need to have different approaches and think about and consider different things. Um, whether you're trying to independently direct your own sort of pelvic floor journey or you're working with someone or you're doing a combination. Um, so I think during the pregnancy phase, just like you said, you might have discomfort or aches and pains. Like your body is going through tremendous change day over day, week over week for 40 weeks. There's a lot of change that's happening. Um, and many people like it's so individualized, right? Some people can just like float by and have like the easiest, best pregnancy. And other people may have a lot of physical discomfort. Um, but if we want to think about what our pelvic floor was doing for us before we got pregnant, like what my pelvic floor is doing for me right now as a non-pregnant woman, what your pelvic floor Jordan is doing for you right now, like you have a pelvic floor, you don't have to go through some of the things that, you know, women have to go through, but yours, yours is still doing things for you. And okay, I'm about to say something that often when I say it, people are like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that, or I didn't think about that. So we might as well kind of say it at the beginning is that we're, we really shouldn't be thinking about our pelvic floor. Like this is not good for my business, but ideally we shouldn't be thinking about it. It should just do its thing because the system itself is designed to work automatically and to work in anticipation of whatever it is that we're doing. So ideally, if things are working well, we don't have to be thinking about it too much. We just trust that it's going to do its thing. And oftentimes that's how we move through life until something shows up that doesn't feel right. And that can look like many things. And oftentimes pregnancy is the first time that people will either experience dysfunction or hear from someone else, oh, you should really do this for your pelvic floor, right? Um, so during pregnancy, it is important to address the strength and the function of your pelvic floor to ensure that you're able to meet the growing demand that's being put on your pelvic floor and your core as the weeks go by, right? So I mentioned earlier on the roles of the pelvic floor, like it helps to support what's in your pelvis, right? So right now for me, I have a bladder that probably has a bit of pee in it. I have a uterus that doesn't have a baby in it. 
I have a rectum that probably has a bit of poop in it. So my pelvic floor from a support standpoint is supporting those organs and the contents, right? Um, as if I were pregnant, then my pelvic floor would also be supporting the weight of the baby, the placenta, the amniotic fluid, all the extra things that our body so like amazingly creates and builds. Um, the pelvic floor has more work to do. It's carrying more load. So all the other jobs that it was doing before you're pregnant, right? Keeping you dry, letting you empty your bladder at the right time, making sure you don't fart when you squat, you know, like um, allowing you to have penetrative sex if that's what you wanted, like all these other things that we don't think about, but we do day to day. Um, your public floor is doing that and it's supporting your body, not to mention, uh, sorry, it's supporting like a baby, not to mention the fact that your belly is also growing as we want it to grow. It needs to grow. Um, and with that stretch of your entire abdominal wall, we can have obviously postural changes and shifts in our body that our pelvic floor as well as other muscles and structures need to compensate for. So making sure that you're taking care of your pelvic floor when you're pregnant can make sure or help you, you know, manage the ongoing load that will kind of keep increasing until you push the baby out. So that's important for that particular phase. Um, so that can might look you? different. Can I pause you? Just yeah. Back. yeah. So, so I think that there's there's an overarching sentiment of generally it will make this like, and I'm not, I'm going to put words in your mouth. You could chew it up, spit it back, but generally like making this time. So so it, this is where not, this is where I'm not, not, not going to challenge you. That's not what I'm saying, but I want people to have a, a, a better, a more specific take home of like, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about, okay, it's let's I'm going to use Jenna as an example, and we're just going to we're just going to roll with that because I know not not everybody's pregnancy is different. I'm sure you'll give up different contexts and that's super helpful. But like, you know, what other than like a pitch of like, hey, it's going to generally make this process more, more, un, less uncomfortable, more comfortable, make you feel better. Like you're like, hey, there's a growing demand. Uh, we, you know, you're growing. There's a growing, you know, demand on the pelvic floor. We need to keep up with this new greater demand. That all makes logical sense. But what am I actually like? What happens if I don't? And thus, what are the actual things like? Like, what would be a sign or symptom of like, oh, you nearly, you really need to do some pelvic floor work. Mm. Um, at, 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 and we can go through all stages because I just I want people to be like, oh, this is why I'm doing this. Not, I know you can say, hey. What one can say, hey, it's going to make all of this feel yeah. less bad. And I think that that's a fine take home. It's awesome. And I think that that's good enough for me and for Jenna to, when we get off this, book a call for the three of us or whatever to sit down and do some, because yeah. it's money and time spent that to, to just improve the experience before, during, and after. And I'm on board with that. But like incontinence is obviously a thing. Um, maybe there's certain pains. Maybe there's something, you know, it will decrease the time it takes to feel like your old self again afterwards. I don't know. I wouldn't put it, but, but those sorts of specific things where you're like, oh, I hear that. Or, you know, maybe you don't have this now, but you might have this and we want to get ahead of it. Like, and I don't want to pressure you for hyper specifics because it is, it can be, and I'd be fine with, Hey, it makes this whole experience less uncomfortable. And even if you don't have those exact things now you're doing that to, you know, reduce the percent chance that you see them in the future. But like, what are the risks of not doing it? What are signs and symptoms of, yeah, yeah, yeah. you really need to do some pelvic floor work. I hear you. You're like, Aaliyah, be more specific. <laughs> no, I like it. Okay. So I'm going to be just generalized as well, because just like you said, everyone's experience is different, right? But signs that, you know, you should, maybe it's time to take a look at your pelvic floor during pregnancy. Okay. Obviously if you start leaking, 
right? So if you're leaking when you sneeze or you cough or you stand up out of a chair, leaking when you um, you have the urge to go to the bathroom and you can't make it there quick enough, but that never used to be a problem for you, right? That that would be a type of incontinence. We can deal with that. Um, feeling like there's a lot of pressure or heaviness down there. Uh, some element of that would be, I would say, within the normal realm of a pregnancy experience, but for some people, it's really uncomfortable, right? So a lot of pressure or, or yeah, downwards force, we can deal with that. Um, pelvic pain, pubic bone pain, so pain in the front of the pelvis, pelvic girdle pain, um, back pain, um, constipation or difficulty like having a nice poop or not pooping regularly. This is a really common side effect of pregnancy, but there are, are things that we can do from a pelvic floor and behavior kind of changes aspect that can help. Um, if you start to have painful intimacy, um, you're, you're having sex before and it was fine. And now suddenly sex is really painful. Um, inability to have an orgasm, these types of things we can deal with as well. So these are common signs and symptoms. Um, things like hemorrhoids, these are very, very common in pregnancy. Um, we do want to try to deal with that during pregnancy as much as we can to eliminate or sorry, reduce the severity of those hemorrhoids as we go in towards the birthing process and the postpartum process too. So leaking is one of those things that's very common for us to experience for the first time in pregnancy. And I'll, I think a lot of people take the view that like, mm, it makes sense. I'm going to leak. Um, it'll get better after, or this is just a part of it. Like now I'm just going to be one of those moms that leaks because I don't know. And like my corner of the internet, there's a lot of um, like laughter about this. Um, not usually from like pelvic floor professionals, but from mommy bloggers and like funny mom accounts. There's a lot of stuff about that. So it, I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. If you're fine with it, I'm fine with it. It's on my body, but um, it doesn't have to be that way. So if you're leaking when you're pregnant and you kind of get a head start on it, it can decrease the incidence of that leaking becoming your new normal. Um, yeah. Does that give you more specific stuff? Oh, that was super duper, super duper helpful. That's okay, actually, great. that's absolutely what I was looking for. Um, Okay, we can. I don't know if that's the end of the like, hey, pre-pregnancy experience or dur sorry, during pre-birth, during pregnancy experience. Um, you know, true. You know, fr from strongly agree to strongly disagree. Hey, you should work on your pelvic floor because it's going to make the birthing process itself less uncomfortable, a, le a less uncomfortable experience. Um, strongly agree, but like with some more clarification there. <laughs> um, strongly agree, but it would. Go ahead. Yeah, I strongly agree, but it would be very different from what we would maybe do to deal with all the things that we just talked about that would could show up during pregnancy. Fair, it's fair. almost like switching gears. But yeah, I do think it's an important part. Um, it's my son is he's going to be nine soon in a few months. And it's not something I actually did when I was pregnant um, or when I was getting ready for birth. I didn't get ready for birth. I didn't do anything. Um, so I really do regret that. <laughs> and so um, I wish that it, for everybody, if that's something that they're interested in. Um, yeah, I would say strongly agree. Cool. P post yeah. postpartum um, continuation. I want to do want to talk about like uh, you know, specifically pretending like we are having a consult here of like, hey, when when is a good time to start? How long should I be doing it? Should I be doing it after? So we can talk about like how long you would recommend, if at all, doing it after. But what would be some of those uh, indications, signs and symptoms of like, hey, like you should probably keep doing. And again, I don't want to you, you made a good point just now of making a distinction of shifting gears like like pelvic floor health or pelvic floor therapy. It's not just one thing. And it's certainly not that one thing is certainly not just Kegels. So I didn't mean to, I know that you don't take it that way, but I didn't mean to lump it all into one thing. Let's just put it under an umbrella of things that somebody would come to you for. Um, for sure, for sure. What's, what's that, what's that postpartum 
you know, indication of, oh, I should keep doing this look like? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, honestly, you're going to get irritated with me saying the same thing over and over again. Like every person is so different. There are some people that they have, you know, a pretty pleasant pre pregnancy. They have a pretty uneventful vaginal birth, right? They didn't have any major trauma. There was no complications. They felt mentally and emotionally very supported. Um, you know, they, yeah, they, they had a nice experience. They had an easy postpartum recovery. Those people typically, they would come and check with me if, if I was following them through their pregnancy, they would come and check with me around six or so weeks. Usually I say, wait until you have clearance from your OB or your midwife to have an internal examination, because for the first six weeks postpartum, we don't want to put anything up there. Um, the kind of wound in the uterus at the placenta left is still healing. So that's why in those first six weeks, we wouldn't be using a tampon. We wouldn't be having penetrative sex. We wouldn't be putting anything up there. Um, <clears throat> so usually around six weeks, we'll get clearance from the OB and people will come in for a check for a check of their pelvic floor muscle function. If they've had a tear of their perineum or anywhere else down there, we can check on the healing. We can do scar work, teach that kind of stuff. You know, there's many people that will check in with me at six, six and then, you know, eight or nine weeks and they're fine. Like they're good to kind of gradually return to what they were doing. They have good direction. They're self-motivated. They kind of know their bodies. They know their limits. They're fine. Other people really want to see me and in air quotes, need to see me every week because that's the type of support they need. Perhaps they had more trauma. Perhaps they need more hands-on work. Perhaps they don't know how to, um, you know, like listen to their body for signs of readiness or for flags. So it's really different. But I would say checking in with someone to kind of know um, where you're at and then chatting about what your goals are, right? So I was working with someone not long ago and her goal was to run, I think, a half Ironman or like some... some crazy race. And she had a really tight timeline, but she was a, an athlete and a runner before I worked with her during her pregnancy. And I was part of her team that helped her get there. Right. So she had a running coach. She had a Cairo. She had a this, she had a that, she had me. And together we helped her get towards her goal. So someone like that would be very different from sort of a, a non-athlete person. That person may need less check-ins. Um, so it's very different, but definitely go i think it's important i think it's good to have a baseline check there are so many things that can be done especially if at six weeks we are still experiencing a lot of symptoms if we're having a lot of pain if we're dealing with incontinence if we're dealing with um you know back pain or abdominal pain if we had a c-section and we're struggling with incision pain or we don't want to even look at our scar if you know, regardless of the type of birth, if we're like, I can't even imagine having penetrative sex again, but I want to do like, there's so many reasons people may come to see someone like me. Um, so I think it would be very dependent on the situation and their goals for how many sessions, how long. Yeah, that that I I, I bet <laughs> I bet I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to again. Not no nobody's making the assumption that uh, I think I think that that's fair. That it's it's going to be different on a case by case basis. What yeah, to solve what the implications are. Let's talk about like when. So if somebody finds out they're pregnant, they, they, you know, I bet you the vast majority of people have never done specific pelvic floor work prior to being, it's very like tied to pregnancy. You might say, Hey, there's some, yeah. you know, long-term maintenance. That's probably a good idea for everyone all the time. And, and I'd love for you to speak to that if that's the case, but you know, someone finds out they're pregnant. They're like, Oh, I heard of this pelvic floor thing. Uh, should I, you know, the day I come home from the hospital and I confirmed I'm pregnant, is that the day I should begin working on this or reaching out to somebody? What's general very general timelines, best practices for people during pregnancy, after pregnancy to, to reach out to somebody. Mm, I like this question. So I would say generally second trimester is a good time to check in 
if you're not having any issues, right? Like if you're dealing with pain or leaks or does anything going on, come in whenever you want, come in the day that you find you're pregnant. But generally, if we're just like, hey, I'm having a pretty good pregnancy and I heard I should do this, come in the second trimester. Then we can kind of plan out, do we, you know, I probably, if people come in and that's how they are, they don't really have any issues immediately to deal with, but they think they should be there. Then often I'll see them a couple of times, maybe during their second trimester. And then I'll see them maybe a couple of times or more towards their due date. Um, again, depending on their goals, but also I do have people that, um, they get pregnant and maybe they've had uh, a long journey with fertility challenges. And there's a lot of maybe anxiety or fear around their entire pregnancy for, for various reasons. Those people really want someone to be following them and to be handholding them. And that's a privilege of mine. Um, you know, they don't feel confident or they feel, they feel anxious about what exercises can I do? Will I hurt my baby? Will I suffer a loss? Like they, you know, a lot of people, have a history that we don't know anything about until they disclose that to us. So there's people who will be having a well pregnancy, but they will just want a lot of accountability and a lot of check-ins. And that's fine too, because I honestly, my approach to pelvic health is a very whole body holistic approach. Like I will never just like look at just your pelvic floor. We're going to be talking about stress and sleep and emotions and mental health and nutrition. We're talking about it all because your pelvic floor is just one part of your body and one part of what makes up your life. Um, so some of it is, is more than just pelvic floor therapy in a way. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, certainly me coming into this was like, oh yeah, just like a bunch of like, uh, you just do a bunch of Kegels and it's like, yeah, it's just like, oh, it's just like different Kegel workouts. And then, and there was like, uh, yeah, I've had some weird phases in, in the last like 15 years, <laughs> like kind of, I've had like a gone deep dive on Kegeling both for men benefits for men, mostly for me. Okay. Um, yeah. And so like have an idea and I was like, all right, you just do a bunch of Kegel workouts. It's like, obviously that's not it. And then you had even said like, it's going to be different for different people and different indications and symptoms and times, you know, where they are in their pregnancy and person and all that stuff. But, and so it's tough to go through every single scenario right now, but to the person who's sitting here, like, ah, oh, it's just a bunch of Kegels. Like, what would you say about what it actually is like? Yeah, that's a good question. And you know what? I'm actually like very anti-confrontational. I really don't like disagreements. I really don't like getting into fight, especially on the internet. And so you're not good at this internet people... thing. You're not good at this Instagram thing. Let me tell you. Oh, I know. No. I'm like, I can't, I don't want to get into fight. Um, no, but I often will like if some if I hear, you know, even just like friends or, or friends of friends or like, you know, my husband's friends are like, oh, you just like do like vagina Kegel things. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what I do. And I like, I'm not going to fight about it. I'm not going to correct you. It's fine. You don't need to know. Um, but I think your listeners need to know. <laughs> so Kegeling really like, what is a Kegel, right? A Kegel is simply just a pelvic floor muscle contraction, like an isolated pelvic floor muscle contraction and a relaxation. That's really what it is. A pelvic floor muscle contraction It's called a Kegel because I'm like, male doctor, Dr. Arnold Kegel decided it should be named after him. And I love how you said that you were going on a deep dive for like yourself, because like men can Kegel too. Men have pelvic floors, but it's often like very much associated with like female pelvic floors, right? This, this Kegel situation. So can a Kegel be a part of a pelvic floor, like exercise program or therapy? Sure. Yeah, of course, of course it can. It's important. We need to be able to contract the muscles well we also need to be able to relax them really well um that's equally as important right i often use an example of like your bicep right because it's easy we can all do it we can all see it so if you stretch out your arm and your elbow is straight then your bicep is 
lengthened. It's long, it's relaxed, it's stretched. And then when you contract it, you bend your elbow and your bicep has to contract to make that action happen. But your bicep is nice and functional if you can do both of those things, stretch it out and bend it. But if you can only stretch it out halfway, that's not a very functional part of your body, right? You could never reach down and like, I don't know, tie your shoe. You couldn't reach your coffee cup over there. There's so many things you couldn't do, but you can see that. So you could be like, well, there's something wrong with my bicep or my elbow that's not letting go all the way. And then you probably would quickly go and figure out what was wrong or maybe seek support. Um, with our pelvic floor, we don't have that luxury of being able to see, or even a lot of us don't know where it is in our body, don't know what it does, don't know that it even exists. We don't have the words or even the self-awareness to be like something is wrong down there. I think my pelvic floor muscles are contracted too much. We don't have that sense. Um, so it's important to have the relaxation and the contraction phase. So Kegel is important, but it's not the only thing. Um, we need to make sure that the muscles can contract quickly and relax quickly, like, you know, kind of more bursts of contractions, relaxation. So strengthening more of the fast twitch muscle fibers at all of the skeletal muscles in our body, they have fast and slow twitch muscle fibers. Our pelvic floor muscles are no different. So we really want to make sure that we can turn those muscles on enough quickly, but also that we can turn them on and hold them kind of more in endurance kind of situation here, um, because we need both of those functions for healthy functional pelvic floor. Remember, it has a number of jobs, right? It has to open and close those holes, sometimes quickly. Um, but it also needs to be able to support our body when we're going for a long walk or going for a run or anything else, right? Um, so it would look maybe like some contraction and relaxation of the pelvic floor muscles, maybe in isolation, and maybe as part of other exercises, right? There's, you know, a lot of other exercises that you may program for your clients or that people might be doing, for example, squats, bridges, clamshells, planks, lunges, all of these things, they activate our pelvic floor, especially if we're intentional about kind of how we're breathing and that we're intentionally doing maybe a gentle lift and a gentle lowering of the pelvic floor. So um, a lot of the times pelvic floor work will look like maybe some isolated work, but a lot of integrative work. Like how do we incorporate those muscles to turn on and turn off at an appropriate level when we're doing other exercises? Um, not to say that, you know, if we're doing a squat with like a hundred pound barbell that we are squeezing our pelvic floor all the way like your vagina is not lifting the barbell up and down it's just an accessory it's just a like a side it's like the not the star of the show but it can support your body so it's also there's nuance right you have to figure out like how much do we turn it on and how much do we let it go um but yes oftentimes we'll learn how to use the muscles with movement. Because like I said earlier, the pelvic floor muscles should just do what they're supposed to. They turn on and turn off when they're supposed to. So training them intentionally can help us get to the point where we don't think about it anymore. Um, and then also it would look like addressing things like outside of that pelvis, right? So taking a look at hip mobility and strength, taking a look at deeper core strength, taking a look at like, you can even go all the way down to the feet, right? Like our whole body is connected, but um, yeah, there's, you know, a lot of research that shows that hip mobility and strength impacts incontinence and stuff like that. So oftentimes we do need to look outside and strengthen other, other systems. Awesome. Let's talk about integrating, well, either integrating it into training and what that might look like, but also I have a group program with hundreds of whatever. There's a lot of people in there and uh, most of them are women. And every so often <laughs> somebody is pregnant and they're like, Hey Jordan, what sort of modification should I make to the training? You know, can I still do this while I'm pregnant? And you know, your, your program has given me a lot of information. I've had some other people in my life that have given me enough knowledge to know at least 
most of the way there from an exercise selection standpoint of what, you know, you, what are like categorical no's. Um, but I also have learned a lot about, you know, things that aren't so easy to communicate, like how you're performing things, how you're breathing, um, your mindset going into exercise. And so I'd be interested in, in breaking it down into the, that side of things. It's like how you're doing it and how you're thinking about it. And then also like very specifically, hey, don't do not do this. Um, do you have a list of, hey, you know, we can start by just, hey, don't do this. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think these are, this is an important distinction to make, right? Like you want, I think for me, and I'm going to, assume for you too, like we want people to be active, right? Like people being sedentary or not moving enough. This is a huge problem in North America for sure. Right. So we want to make sure that we're doing the things that we can keep people moving throughout their pregnancy. If they're already moved, if they were already moving or encourage them to become active for the very first time during pregnancy, because there's so many proven benefits to exercise and cardio and strength training during pregnancy benefits to mom physically, um, you know, decrease in incidence of things like preeclampsia and gestational diabetes and mental health benefits. And even like there's a correlation between decreased pushing time. If we're talking about a vaginal birth, like increased postpartum or better postpartum recovery. There's so many reasons we should exercise during pregnancy, but yeah, so let's get more granular. And these are the things we shouldn't do. So I think when it comes to like things that would put you at risk of like falling on your belly and hurting your baby. I think these things we shouldn't do. Right. So sometimes things like downhill skiing or maybe even skating in some situations, you know, I would say, go talk to your OB about it. But generally if it's like a safety thing, let's just replace that with something else. Um, I think big fat no-nos might be like crunches, right? Like sit-ups kind of thing. I don't really necessarily love that. Um, there's so many better ways that we can train the core during pregnancy. So often I'm just like, stop that one. Um, it does create a lot of pressure in the belly, right? And if you think about the stretch that's happening in the abdominal wall, that's like a lot of pressure that we actually want and we need to keep happening. So why would we create a more of a pressure moment when we can do something else? So typically I'm like, just leave the crunches alone or leave the sit-ups alone. Let's modify. Um, and then things like if someone's doing some yoga training or like some back bends, like a lot of back bends puts a lot of stretch on that abdominal wall. Same idea, right? The belly and the tissue, the connective tissue, the muscles are going to stretch anyways. Like, why do we want to put them into an extra stretch? Let's just simmer down there. Um, so those are kind of like my two kind of hard ones. Running is not like a hard no. Running is kind of like a listen to your body. Many people decide to kind of let that go around second trimester somewhere and replace with something else. Um, but that would depend a lot on like who they were. If they're a marathoner and they're like an athlete and that's what they did, maybe they're going to run into their third um, if they feel good. Um, so I don't have a lot of like really huge, you shouldn't do this, right? Um, but I think from a mindset perspective, it's important, I think, for people to understand and maybe you as a coach to prompt um, people to just know that they're not these like pregnant people are not these like delicate flowers. We are like robust, strong humans that are growing another human, but you're also not the same person that you were before you were pregnant, right? There's a different demand that's happening in your body. Um, your your resources, your internal resources are, you, are being used for other things as well. Um, so it's kind of like encouraging people to look at the whole picture. How are they sleeping? How are they feeling from like a physical standpoint? Are they having any kind of like pelvic floor and core symptoms, right? Are they leaking during exercise or after? Are they having a ton of downwards pressure? Do they feel like absolute garbage after they've worked out that they can't like even do anything else for the rest of the day? Um, are they eating well? Are they drinking enough? Are they really stressed and anxious and is working out making like making them feel worse? Um, you know, kind of looking at that kind of big 
picture as opposed to maybe the way we may be approaching fitness and exercise before we were pregnant is a lot of us do have like an all or nothing mindset, right? So kind of moving out of that, leaving the ego out of it and really understanding that movement is good and movement is good for me and good for my baby. Um, <clears throat> and to know like, if something doesn't feel right, don't abandon it, but don't also keep going, try to modify it and find something different. So, um, you know, example might be planks, right? If someone's doing a plank on hands and on toes, if that starts to feel really challenging or they feel like they're not able to manage pressure down in their pelvic floor, they maybe they feel a lot of pressure downwards or they might see some pressure mismanagement or maybe like signs of a diastasis. Maybe we can talk about this later. Instead of abandoning a plank, a plank, Try to see if you can do a plank elevated onto a bench, for example, or even onto a wall. It's still a great exercise. So just thinking about modifying push-ups and planks if those start to become difficult, um, you know, maybe decreasing the weight or not trying to go for a PR, um, not trying to improve your strength or increase your your load every week. Maybe you're not doing that. You're just staying or decreasing load. That's fine too. Um, <clears throat> so kind of learning how to check your ego, listen to your body, look at the big picture and be okay with modifying, not abandoning what you're doing. Amazing. I have so many, so many follow-up questions. I want to start by saying something you can do your, we could do the strongly agree to strongly disagree again. <laughs> um, here's, it's, it's interesting. Here's a, I, I took, I took a lot of courses on maybe three or four courses, the mama stay fit, and a couple other ones, I'm sure you're these, you know, hashtag competitors and whatever, but like, no, well, maybe not good. directly. Yeah, but irrelevant. Um, and, and a lot of them were prior to, it was like a combo, like pelvic floor health, but also like how to, you know, how to do exercise while pregnant. Um, and the, the funny thing is like, there's, and I want to talk about coning. I want to talk about bracing. I want to talk about breathing and we're going to get there. But the irony with coning, bracing, breathing is kind of what I'm about to go down, which is like, um, I, I did a lot of these courses and a lot of them were like how to squat, how to bench, how to deadlift, how to, you know, split squat, a lot of how to barbell row. A lot of them were like shot in these CrossFit gyms. And again, I don't know what your lifting background is, but um, I run a, uh, my group is whatever design a little bit more. Uh, I have a home group and a, and a gym group totally. But when we talk about like exercises that are more optimal for hypertrophy, most of them actually one of the key components of an exercise that would rank highly for hypertrophy is doesn't require bracing, doesn't require, um, you know, uh, has additional external support and stability by a chest support or a, a bench brace or you're sitting or, and it's just, it's uh, the irony is like a program, at least mine, and I'm not, I'm not like, oh my God, you don't need to change anything about my program. I'm not, but it, the irony is like all of these things I was watching was like how to barbell back squat, how to barbell deadlift. And I'm like, and then I have people in my group that are like, oh, I, I, you know, I watched a lot of these videos and it's like, I need to modify all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, you're doing like seated bicep curls, you know, like they're like, well, I can't, I can't, I can't train with the same RIR, same RPE. And I'm like, you're the boss and you should absolutely be listening to your body and you should absolutely adopt a mindset of it doesn't need to be a PR right now. And I mean, all of those things, I mean, I wouldn't change a word of that, but you're doing a seated bicep curl. Like th there's probably not a high amount of stability embracing and you know, you're not going over the line of something you wouldn't want to go over the line. Like uh, most really good hypertrophy exercises are actually designed in a way where you probably can still train really hard. Yes free weight, barbell, back squats, a lot of exercises that require, you know, some core stability and internally bracing and absolutely the big rocks that I would look at. But I'll have people being like, well, what about like my like dumbbell lateral raise? And I'm like, you know, you're, you're, 
probably okay to, to train that pretty hard, you know? And again, within the, the bounds of an umbrella of, of listening to your body. And if, you know, if you're flinging the weight, using too much weight, and all of a sudden there's a lot of arch and a, a lot of just like, you know, hip extension to get involved and fine. But I just like, I, I'm like, you know, a good hypertrophy program probably won't mean you need to make a lot of big no-no exercise swaps if the exercises were chosen because they're good for hypertrophy and they have a lot of external stability and bre and, and bracing and it's a machine or you're sitting. And it just was funny because none, none of the courses I took involved any like machine or a, a braced position or when I say braced position, I don't mean bracing of your like TVA or anything like that. I mean like a, a hand support or a chest support or uh, just like something where you don't about laying down, not flat on your back, but laying down enough that, you know, on an, on an angle, whatever. I just was, I always look at that. And I'm looking at my program. I'm like, actually guys, like it's just like not many of those exercises that fall into that category. Some of them do if we're doing RDLs or split squats or step ups or for sure, totally. But if God forbid we're doing a barbell back squat, whatever. Um, but anyway, I'm going to I'm going to backtrack. Would you say that like we're mostly looking at, and I want to talk about breathing and bracing now, but that as a big thing that we, that you want to talk about. If you're like, Hey, you're doing bicep curls. You're probably okay. Training those hard. I wouldn't, that wouldn't be a thing where I'm again, under the umbrella of listening to your body and, and, and meeting yourself where you're at and not trying to PR all the time, all that stuff. That's probably not a, a, a bone you have to pick. It's probably more on like, Hey, if you're trying to like do a heavy triple in squats. Like now we're really talking about a higher risk scenario, not to be fear mongery, but that's definitely more of a talking point. Would you say? Yeah, I have to say, I totally agree with you. Um, and I think that that might be why the courses that you took and like the stuff out there is more CrossFit-y because it is. you'd probably, yeah, like that is my background right now. Like up until 2019, I was very much, you know, working out at home, dumbbells, kettlebells, um, or in a gym now and again, I didn't work out in a gym when, since my son was born in 2015. And then I kind of switched just to home workouts. And then in 2019, I joined a CrossFit gym here or like a functional exercise gym or whatnot. And that's what I really love to do right now. Um, so yes, with that lens, yeah, we're lifting heavier weights. We're we're doing more complicated movement patterns. Um, there is more thought that might need to be put might need to be put into what we're doing with our breath, how we're managing those heavy loads safely in and outside of pregnancy, right? But I would agree with you if we're doing more of a home program where we're using dumbbells, um, weights that we can move, even if they're really heavy, we're still probably able to breathe through them. I think that. I would agree with you. I think there's certain things and I think you had touched upon it, like, you know, the change in our posture and our center of gravity is going to impact our balance capabilities, right? So from a safety standpoint, perhaps we won't feel good doing like reverse lunges, right? With weights, we might feel good better doing like a static lunge. Maybe we don't want to do a Bulgarian with our rear foot elevated. Maybe not, right? We just want to stay on the ground. That's fine too. So I think those modifications are probably quite easy for I would say for any good coach to be like, try this option. This makes more sense for you right now. Um, and I think if we're going to talk about like breathing and bracing at, at those volumes or like repetitions or whatnot, whatever you're doing, I think like we shouldn't be bracing for sets of eight to 10 reps. I think we should be cycling our breath and that's important. However, I will say that I do find people that come to see me in clinic and we're doing small, even TheraBand exercises. We're doing some low dumbbell weight exercises and they're new to training. 
they don't know what to do with their breath. So holding our breath is a standard strategy for some of us when we've never done movement like that before. So I don't know, you probably take care of that in your programming, but I think it's important to to cycle our breath. Talk talk through that a little bit because I think there's, you know, most of my group will have a familiarity with um, a, you know, one in general, non-pregnancy aside, that that for hypertrophy, given the rep ranges that we are using, that breathe like a big Valsalva, like big breathe, brace, hold, exhale at the top, is actually counterproductive for sets higher than three. You're gonna pass out. Um, totally, but totally. That, but but having some rhythm to it, and and probably not probably not you know inhaling during the eccentric. Like there are probably some best practices in terms of a breathing kind of uh, strategy protocol rhythm for sure. But in pregnancy, how might you go about articulating either big no-nos or general, hey, this is a breathing pattern I might, because I know I've heard a million times, don't hold your breath, don't hold your breath, don't hold your breath. Is that uh, don't hold your breath ever throughout the rep or is that a, hey, don't hold your breath the entire time you're doing the concentric? Does that mean don't hold your breath? You know, how might we add a little bit of context for people who might already have some idea of how to breathe uh, of like when and how not to hold their breath? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think generally if we wanted to slap a rule on it, right? Because some people do better just like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then they play with that rule and they see what that means for them. If we try to think about exhaling at the hardest part of whatever movement is, right? So if we think about a squat, coming up from the squat is typically the most difficult part of that, right? When we're doing a bicep curl, curling the weight up is typically the most difficult part. Overhead press, pressing it is usually more hard. So if we just think about like, what's the hardest part of this exercise without, you know, for regular people, we don't need to know what the concentric and eccentric is. What's the hardest part? Let's exhale during that hardest part. Um, And I like that because what that can do, especially if we sort of train this independently outside of adding it to movements with weights, we can breathe in a way that sort of brings our deep core system, including our pelvic floor into it. So in a way that we can be mindful of what our pelvic floor is doing, in a way that we can recruit our deep core system to kind of support our body as we move, it's kind of a nice way to... To, it's like a friendly way to train um, and it can help us to cycle our breath, like inhale as you lower down into the squat, exhale as you come back up, for example, right? And you can think about any exercise that has like two main movement, one in and out, up and down, and just use that principle. Um, because ideally, you know, and we talked about this within the course, but I haven't touched upon it today, is that ideally our pelvic floor will move as we breathe, right? Especially if we're intentional about it and if we practice it. For some of us, it's very natural to pick it up. And for some of us, it's very, very challenging. But ideally, when we take a nice, slow, gentle inhale, and we do so in a way that allows our diaphragm to be a part of the fun, we allow our rib cage to expand all the way. We let our belly go, let it fill. Our pelvic floor muscles and the structure should lower down because that big inhale creates a pressure moment in our belly and our viscera, our organs will be sort of compressed and pushed down. So our pelvic floor will also lower in response to that pressure moment. Now, as we exhale, everything should kind of spring back up, right? If we be really intentional about that exhale and we can kind of use a use a forced exhale strategy kind of with our mouth in a little O shape, like or even our teeth like gently together and making a shh sound, we can slow down the air, forcing us to work hard to get it out. And, you know, we can encourage a gentle lift of the pelvic floor 
and we'll feel our deep abs turn on. And when we are pregnant, we can even see like our belly get a little bit smaller as we're kind of recruiting that deep core system. And that's a nice way to bring actually pelvic floor and core exercises into any movement that you're doing. And in a lot of cases, like that is enough. If you're not having any issues, that is a great way to incorporate pelvic floor exercises into your regular movements. It's a great way to kind of I don't know, in quotes, protect your body as you're, you know, doing your regular exercises. And I think it's a good way to um, have people focus on cycling that breath with some kind of intention or a guide, like just exhale at that hardest part. Does that help? Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's usually two people will fall, people who have worked on this. Or, yeah, honestly, that that breathing pattern, I don't want to say intuitive in a condescending way of like, oh, like you, you just, just go figure it out. You should figure it out. But th- that is the most intuitive way to breathe. But if you're, if it wasn't an intuitive thing, that is something that you should be articulated to by whoever's program you're doing. If you're, if you are kind of saying to breathe through that concentric phase, through the standing in the squat, through the the standing in the deadlift, through the, you know, pressing up of the dumbbell, um, which is super helpful because I do think, especially at the end of a set, you know, man, you, you can have a grinder of, you know, you can have a, I could have mm-hmm. five to seven second concentric phase of a squat, the standing up, you know, and, and to hold the breath during like if we're like yeah beginning of the set you know your concentrics are smooth they're usually like half a second to two seconds like but towards the end of the set if you are working really hard that's when that breath holding breathing bracing might be a very very long time and a very very big strain and so i think if you are someone who's been holding your breath through the concentric phase and letting go at the top which is a fine way and certainly how you'll be taught if you're doing powerlifting and stuff to is to keep that brace throughout the concentric and let it go at the top what we're saying is yeah Maybe don't do, maybe start to let it go a bit sooner. Maybe don't have hold, especially as we near failure, especially if we're working, you know, very, very hard and you have a long concentric, that's a lot of strain. um, Maybe start to let that breath go during the concentric, which I think is a very good practical takeaway that that people will take away. And yes, hopefully. And also like, if you hold your breath, like like, nothing's going to happen. Like if you hold your breath a few times, if you forgot and you were like, I need to finish this eighth rep and I can't do, I just... I need to do it. And you hold your breath, like, it's fine. Nothing's going to happen. Like, we also don't need to be scared of our bodies. But repetitively holding our breath and lifting really heavy things and maybe our body not being able to counteract that increase in pressure, and we're doing that over and over and over again as our body keeps changing and growing, like this where like maybe we might run into some issues. But again, it's super challenging, right? Because if you do run into issues postpartum or during your pregnancy, like who's to say what caused it? Right. So we're just trying to be cautious and just smart and use some practices that make sense so that we can allow our body to change in the way that we need it to change and try to mitigate or minimize any potential long term problems so that we can go back to like living our life and doing the things that we enjoy without dysfunction or injury. Awesome. Love that. Let's talk about coning slash diastasis, because I think it is a thing that, um, is easily identifiable and and thus and very actionable because I think it's something that you can start to really see and feel um, and and I and I think I personally would also love your take just like you just said on the how to think about it in terms of oh I got I freak should I freak out I just sat up out of bed and I saw coning or I just sat up from the bench and I saw coning like am I did I do harm how should I think about you know. Should, should I be just be thinking, hey, this isn't helpful. I probably don't want to do this a ton, but if it happens, it's not the end of the world. So let's talk a little bit about coning, diastasis during exercise, how to think about it, and how much to worry about it. Mm-hmm. I love this question. There's a lot of nuance here, so I'm going to try my best. And also, this is like a, an area of women's health, you know, prenatal, postpartum 
kind of rehab and fitness that we're learning more about. There just isn't enough research. We just don't, I don't think we know enough, right? So I think what we know now is that we don't need to be afraid if we see coning during pregnancy necessarily or postpartum, but there's nuance. So let's get, let's talk about that. So coning or doming is when we see something kind of like poking out anywhere along that midline. So running up and down the middle of the belly. Um, and we can see it usually maybe second trimester, maybe closer to the third. Every body is different. But basically what it is, is a widening of that connective tissue that connects the six pack abs, the right and the left six pack. There's a line of connective tissue that runs in between that. And as our pregnancy progresses and as our bellies get bigger, all of the tissue and all of the structures of our abdominal wall stretch, the muscles stretch, but also the connective tissue does. And this is a natural adaptation to pregnancy. We need this. We need to have an adequate stress, stretch. Otherwise, our baby's growth will be limited. And like, we don't want that. So, I mean, basically, at the end of everyone's pregnancy, they're going to have some kind of widening of that area. It could be just above the belly button. It could be just around the belly button. It could be just below or the entire thing. Um, but we're all going to have some element of that. Now, how to pathologize it, That we could we could talk about that quite a bit. But if you are getting up out of bed, like you said, or you're lounging on the couch and you kind of just like get up and you're... So some people do walk around just like wearing a bra, but many people have their clothes on. So they would even never notice <laughs> if this was happening. But if you do notice that you're seeing like, I call it a, a Toblerone, you know, that chocolate, um, like in the, the pyramid, I don't know what that shape is, but it kind of looks like that, like coming out of your belly. So that is just an indication that that weakened connective tissue is not able to manage the pressure that is kind of being created in your belly when you're doing something that's quite normal and quite not dangerous, such as getting up out of bed or getting out from a, getting up from a semi-reclined position. So if people are seeing this, don't do like a hundred of them in a row as a party trick, like show your husband or your partner a few times. And then like, let's try not to do that for fun all the time. When we see it day to day, let's find another way to get up out of bed or get up off of the chair that might be grabbing onto someone's arms to have them help you or just roll to the side and push yourself up. Right. So don't panic. Do a few party tricks to like show your partner, but then like, let's try not to repetitively stress those already stretched tissues that are showing you they're not doing the greatest job managing changes in pressure. So that's how I would approach it in day-to-day -day activities. Don't freak out. It's not the end of the world. I have many people that come to see me well towards into their third trimester. And, you know, we'll talk about all kinds of things about preparing for birth. You know, they're 36 weeks pregnant, let's just say. And, you know, they're leaving the appointment. They're like, oh, you know, I've been like noticing this like really weird thing. And I'm like, well, I mean, don't do it so much and you'll be fine. Like now it's happened. Um, but when it comes to exercise, I would change the tune a little bit. So during exercise, if we're seeing this type of Toblerone situation poking out of our belly, and again, some people exercise in a bra and some people exercise in shirts, so they don't have any idea. So this is something I would intentionally keep an eye on now and again. If you're noticing this coning that's happening with specific exercises and culprit ones would be... Um, planking, push-ups, um, pull-ups if we're doing pull-ups. So anything that has a really strong core component, um, we may see this. But you might also see it when you do a reclined chest press. Like, I don't know. You, it could show up many places. But that's something that we want to try to manipulate maybe our breathing and our deep core connection to see if we can do something 
with our body or if we can modify that particular exercise so that we can do it without seeing that sign of poor pressure management or that doming. So don't panic, don't dis don't like get rid of the exercise entirely. Play around with it. Use your breath. A lot of the times using that forced exhale, that shh, and really turning on a little bit of the pelvic floor and the deep abdominals, that transverse abdominis. For some of us, we can manage pressure much better that way. Try that or modify and see how you do. That is one that I wouldn't necessarily ignore. Like I wouldn't do, you know, three sets of 10 with this like coning happening every single day. We don't want to take what is um, sort of a natural adaptation and turn that into an injury. We don't want to stretch and stress a tissue so much that we end up in more of an injury territory. It just will take maybe longer to rehabilitate. It just might take longer from a functional and an aesthetic standpoint if that's one of our goals postpartum. That's super helpful because I think that there's a actually a wide range of rhetoric around this. I think that I won't name names, of courses, but certainly one that left me feeling like I was like, all right, Jenna, walked right into the garage. I was like, no more coning. No, don't you arch, you know, don't sit up from that 45 degree angle bench. I'm going to come help you get out. Like, you know, maybe I'm taking a little bit far, but it's certainly one where I was like, oh, like this is uh, a net negative, which I think it probably is a net negative, but it's probably not, it's like not helpful. Right. But um Certainly not uh, in the way of like, oh, you, you coned, like this is going to just make your diastasis way more severe and it's going to make your postpartum recovery way worse. And it's it's all that, you know, on us, again, everything is like dose dependent, of course. And so like you're saying, like, don't, don't, don't not care about it at all and just rep that out, you know, in every workout, you're doing a bunch of exercises where this happens and don't show it to other people for fun. And uh, totally, I think, um, you know, to say, hey, this isn't helpful and when and if you can reduce it, that's probably something you should do, but we're not gonna, you know, have a conniption about it happening every once in a while um, is a probably pretty healthy way to think about it for sure. Um, and, you know, even like some of the things that have helped Jenna is just like how to get up from certain positions and how to just, instead of doing it intu just like nat intuitively, like you might've done pre-pregnant, just think for a second of like, oh, maybe I turn to my side, right? I turn on my side and then I get up that way or I, okay, there's actually, I can hold on to the, the the rack and I can pull myself up a little bit. And again, not being like, oh, if I sit up and I use my abs, like uh, something's gonna explode. But like, yeah, just right. I have the opportunity to make some small small changes to make it happen less and less frequently with less severity, that that's probably a good a good thing to do. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? Let's just like, let's not ignore it, but let's like, let's not let it paralyze us with fear. There is enough that many pregnant women feel um, feel scared about they feel scared about so many things. This doesn't need to be one of those things. And if people go down like a rabbit hole online, it can be really scary. Um, it can be really scary. And when it comes to rehabilitating this after, there's a lot of this like, never do a crunch, never do this, never do that unless it's like one finger deep and one finger wide. Like just just fuck all that noise. Just learn how to build your body strong from the inside out and strengthen your abdominal wall in all of the ways. That's what we know right now. There are no safe exercises or unsafe exercises in terms of diastasis rehab. Just like do them properly, build up appropriately and strengthen everything. Your obliques, your rectus, your deep abs, everything. That's awesome. That's good. It's, uh, it seems like not, not, uh, not, that's not, I don't want to overgeneralize, but there is a lot of like not backtracking on whatever, man. We, we learn, we grow new evidence, new information, more nuance that happens over time. You'd only hope. And so, yeah, it seems like, maybe what I as a lay person very on the fringes consuming information thought is really 
again, quite nuanced of you being like, yeah, okay, coning, not the end of the world. Like there's no hard and fast rules for stuff, but I feel like hard and fast rules are what end up making it to the lay consumer. And so it's good to attach some nuance for sure. I want to ask, I want to ask a question about in-person versus PT, like very practically about the value of doing one over the other. And if somebody's looking for it, but before, before I do that, I kind of, I'm kind of thinking like, I don't know what I don't know. And so what, what did we miss? What did I miss? What am I missing? What's something that you're like, Hey, I, I feel like this is a strong point I, I want to talk about or a misconception I, that, you know, I, you know, I'm having a chance to speak to an audience here that I really would want to get across. Like what, what is something that maybe if anything that we're like, that you're like, now nah, we, we missed this. We should, we should cover this. Maybe just really briefly about, cause we talked about that, the different phases and we talked about what pelvic floor muscle training might look like or why we might want to do that when pregnant. And then we said, well, we would have to switch gears for preparing for birth, but we didn't really talk about it. So maybe just touching upon the fact that it would look different and you can not do any pelvic floor focused work your whole pregnancy, but still want to prepare for your birth. And that might look that might look a little bit different. So maybe if we can just touch upon that, because there might be some people listening. They're like, I don't want to do any of this. I'm already incorporating some of this. I feel fine, but I still want to go into my birth knowing a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Please, please. Okay. So I think that when we're thinking about preparing for birth, I think what I want to say right off the top is that, you know, we're having children as adults, right? Some of us are in our 20s. I don't know how old Jenna is, but some of us are in our 20s, our 30s, our 40s. We have lived our whole adult life making decisions and being in control of what we do and what happens to our body, right? So for many of us, it can feel really strange or disorienting to be in a situation where we during pregnancy, we don't have full control over what's happening to our body. In fact, we have to modify and change things that we've been doing our whole life, and it's not in our control. Um, And going into birth for some of us can feel a little bit scary for that kind of reason too, right? It can, if we already have a little bit of anxiety or fear, it can really spike that quite a bit. So I think that preparing for birth um, from a pelvic, like a pelvic floor kind of lens can help give a little bit of um, empowerment and autonomy in a situation where we feel like we may not actually have any of that. We don't know what it would look like. We don't know when we're going to go into labor. We don't know, is it going to be painful? Is it going to be long? Is it going to be short? Is the baby going to like be born vaginally? Or is it going to be a C-section? Like We don't know. But if we learn about what's happening in our body, if we learn about a few things that we can do to prepare our mind, to prepare our pelvic floor, um, even our mindset, right? Like going into birth, this can have an impact on our overall experience. And, you know, perinatal mood disorders, so, you know, anxiety, depression, other types of mood disorders that show up during pregnancy and postpartum, this is a very vulnerable and dangerous area for many moms. So I think that this is an important piece for some of us to feel like we are in control of a situation that we actually don't have too much control over. But if we know, um, for example, what we can do to kind of prepare and stretch our pelvic floor, how to kind of almost practice or even think about where will our mind go when we get scared? What happens in our body when we feel stressed or anxious or we're feeling painful contractions, for example? How can we practice um, a response that we want from our body when we're in that situation so that when we're there, kind of like visualization or like even training for something? Um, And then also just knowing where do we have a choice? Like we have choice of pain control, maybe. We have choice of how to push if we're talking about a vaginal birth. We have choice maybe of position to give birth in. So if we know all of these things beforehand, because in North America, most of the time you go to the hospital, you probably are not going to be informed about all of those choices. So knowing it beforehand, you know when 
you have the you know when you have choice and you have you're making an informed choice and that is a sense of empowerment that it can give people so i feel like that is something to consider for the person that's going through their pregnancy and feels good and is like i don't need to do this now but i do want to know more than my hospital prenatal class told me or that my five minute OB appointment told me. So I think that it's something to think about and it has less to do with strengthening and more to do with like kind of lengthening and yielding and getting your mind and body prepared for like stretch. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. We're definitely in that, Jenna just entered third trimester and we're definitely in that mode of a combination of, you know, the physiological adaptations that can come from some of this training, but also some of the the mindset around it, which I think is huge yeah. and under discussed probably. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Let's close with the discussion of, okay, okay, someone's intrigued. They're like, all right, do this pelvic floor thing. Probably a good idea. Uh, Lee's pretty smart and I'm going to listen to her. And how do we articulate the value of seeing somebody in person versus online? I know you do some of both. How can somebody go about thinking about what's right for them? Um, that's a really good question. I think take take into consideration what your learning style is, right? What your resources are, right? For a lot of times, it's quite expensive to see someone in person like me. I don't know the insurance situation there in the States, but I know that like to get someone that's it's not out good. of network, is that, that's not good. <laughs> it's yeah, never good so, here. I mean, <clears throat> it's expensive, right? So sometimes we have to be real. We don't have the resources. We may not have like the time if we have a busy job or like a life, right? So in many cases, if we're learning, if we're looking to learn and we are good at being self-directed and we are good at like working on our own pace at our own pace, um, you know, taking a course or meeting with someone online for more educational stuff and like resources or programs to follow, I think that's a really neat way. A lot of the work that I do one-on-one with people who are coming in with not so many complaints, but more like, I just want to know all the things. It's a lot of education. Um, So yeah, I think online is great. But if you're someone that's struggling with symptoms, if you're having pelvic girdle pain, if you're like leaking quite a bit and kind of the top line strategies are not working for you, um, or if you really know that you are someone that needs you need someone one-on-one, then that would indicate. And perhaps sometimes it's a combination of both, right? Do a bunch of learning, go see someone in person in your community for a physical assessment so that you have their feedback about what your body's doing. Then you can continue to like implement what you've learned through an online course or program, for example. So I think, yeah, take, uh, ask yourself what you really need, what your time is, what your money is like and what's important to you and kind of make that decision. Do you, do you feel that a lot of people who do your course end up um, like I, I gathered a ton of information, but I certainly was left thinking like, oh, I really want some help with this. So you feel like that's like, mm-hmm. not, not the goal, but I mean like the, you know, the, do you feel, would you, I would, I'll say what I would say for my own business that I think, um, somebody who's just walking, who's like, I want to build some muscle and get stronger. I've, I very strongly advocate that you work with somebody in some capacity that you don't just go in, find a program online and start doing it. You, would you echo that point? for someone looking for, you know, pelvic floor health. Yeah, I in a way, in a way, I would. Again, if you're feeling fine, then like maybe you don't need that. But yes, I would say that even if you take my course, for example, or if you take like the before birth that you and Jenna took or my other, I have like mini courses, which are shorter. If you take those, you learn so much but you won't necessarily learn a ton about what your own body is doing. I teach how to do a self-assessment on yourself, but it's not the same. Like that's one person's pelvic floor that you're trying to figure out. Whereas like you go see me, like I've seen like hundreds, like I, and I'm trained in it. Right. So you get different information. So I often will say if people reach out to me individually, like, 
do you think I should see someone? I'm like, yeah, if you have the capacity, go see them, tell them, you know, a whole bunch of stuff and you need to learn more about your body. And a lot of people who take my course and they live in Toronto, they will come and see me for that same reason. They'll just want to know what's happening in their body. Um, so I think it's a nice compliment. Also, like the number of hours that you get when I teach you online, like me particularly, like if we were to do that in person, that would be like thousands, thousands of dollars. So it's really good bang for your buck, to be honest. Um, but it, a compliment in person, I think it's it's good. It's always good to know your baseline. It's always good to know what's going on. It also, it teach, it's valuable information. We should know this about our own bodies. Cool. Super duper helpful. You, you were great. This is exactly what I wanted. I know it's going to help a ton of people. Give people- Oh, I'm so happy. Do the, do, the, do the classic podcast outro of where people can find you. Okay. Okay. So the social media place I like to hang out and not get in fights on is on Instagram. Um, my Instagram name is at box wellness co. And if you want to learn about the different types of courses that I have, um, I have like a, a live six week workshop series that Jordan did. Um, that's called before birth. And I hold that twice a year, but I also have, um, these mini courses that are for prepping for birth and prepping for postpartum. And those are on your own. You just kind of follow it. You do it whenever you want. And so you can learn all about that stuff as well as other programs that I have on my website at boxwellness.co. And I have my own podcast where I talk and teach about pelvic health stuff. And I have conversations with other women about how they were raised and um, how they kind of navigate their, their lives and their pelvic floors. Um, and that's called um, Not Your Mother's Pelvic Floor. And you can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. So. Awesome. Super, super. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.